I am very glad to uh, be bearing good news to you tonight. If you've been tracking along with us the last couple of weeks, uh, you're probably a little bogged down by now, which you probably should be. Uh, we've been in a section of scripture that, um, that points us to the good news of Jesus, but it isn't the good news of Jesus. It's not the gospel. Uh, it's, it's the condition of our hearts. It's an exposition of our brokenness. It's, it's nuancing how we are rebellious, showing us things about ourselves that we are blind to, showing us how deaf we are to God. So tonight, this, this shifts, this changes. This, this is a good night. And I'm glad that you're here for tonight. Um, because this passage that, that was just read and that we're going to be looking at tonight. This, I mean, this is the key to the whole, this, this is the key to all of reality. I mean, this is not just a Christian thing. I mean, this is, this is it. I mean, this is, the, this is the hinge that not only the book of Romans swings on, but all of scripture, all of God's work in the world to bring us back to him. Like, this is it. Right here in this passage. So, um, so please don't, don't miss this tonight. So we're looking at verses 21 through 31, but I want to pull back and just take a a sneak peek at verse 20 to, uh, if you're not already bogged down enough from being with us for the last month, uh, this will bog you down for a second. Check out what it says in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the works, or sorry, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So did you hear that? No one will be justified by the works of the law. What you can do for yourself, it's not going to happen. Which that's the conclusion of two and a half chapters worth of, you stink. You know you do. Oh yeah, and there's also places that you stink and you didn't know. Concludes with this, this huge, I mean, it's, it's like the lights go dark. Like it's completely out. Completely out. No one will be justified. There's no hope. You're done. I mean, this is almost like an epitaph on a, on a, on a you know, cemetery graveyard. It's just like, I mean, if it ended right there, that's what we would have. But it doesn't end there. What we shift into, and really the rest of the book of Romans, what we shift into right here is how God makes possible that which is impossible. Like, I hope you feel the, the, the impossibility of how you could ever come to know Jesus, how you could ever love him, how you could ever be restored and healed. That is, it is impossible. If you, if you weren't here with us the last couple of weeks, or if you were and you missed it, that's the whole point. It cannot happen. You're, you're estranged. You're separated off on your own in the dark. You have no idea where you are. There, there's no hope. And, and, but now we get this shift in verse 21 when, when God says to us through Paul, but now. If you want to sum the gospel up in two words, that's it right there. But now. Other places it says, but God. I mean, really one word, but there's, there's more to the story. There, there is a possibility to this impossibility that God can make possible, that he has made possible in the face of everything that was saying that it wasn't possible. 
in the face of, even if it was possible, every reason that God shouldn't. I mean, that's really what 118 through 320 is. Every reason God should hate us. Just a list of here, here it is. But that's, that's not the end. Like, that's not what we have in the gospel. That is not the end of the story. That is true. He does have every reason to hate us, but he doesn't. God loves us. He loves you. So look with me as we, as we walk through this passage. It says in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. If you read that right, right up against verse 20, no one will be justified. Nobody. But now, that word righteousness comes from the same word that the word justified does. So it could be understood and translated this way. No one will be justified, but now a justification from God has been revealed. There is hope. There is a way out. The righteousness of God. This word righteousness means uh, in relation to God, it's, it's when God's actions are in accord with his character. And here, it's in special reference to God's unique way of retaining his character and also establishing uprightness for humans. That's, that's what's impossible here. We're so far gone. For God to welcome us home, the, the bottom of God is going to have to drop out. Like he's going to have to give up on his justice and just let, us, let it fly. But, but what this is saying is the righteousness of God has been manifested. God making possible what was impossible. He has done it and he has done it in an orderly way. He's calm about it. He's cool and collected. We've got it here listed for us in verses 21 through 26. And, and he steps into our mess, into our brokenness. And he's fine. And he brings us up to be fine. Uh, one of my favorite authors and pastors, uh, Tim Keller, he, he talks about righteousness in this way. He describes righteousness as a resume. A resume is what you put together with all of your accomplishments on it and you hand it to a school or to a job and say, this is why you should accept me. Here's all the reasons of why you should, you should bring me in. My resume uh, isn't worth anything in the real world. My resume, uh, if anyone outside of the church was going to try and hire me, it just like, I mean, they would just, they would just light it on fire and just laugh at me. Uh, but the very first thing, my school, California Baptist University, it's an oxymoron. Like it, there's, there's Christians in California, let alone Baptists. Like you're, is this even a real school that you're putting down on your, on your resume? Uh, you know, what can you do? Oh, I can read the Bible. Uh, what are your interests? Church? You know, then I, what can I do? I, what do I want to preach at the drive-thru? I don't know. You know, I, mean, can't, I don't have anything to offer. So my resume isn't worth much in the real world. Um, but righteousness, it, that, that's the idea of righteousness. Resume. And as we're going to see here, this is, if you want to use that word resume, but now the resume, have, resume of God has been manifested. How? Apart from the law. Separate. Apart from the law, what that means is separate from what you could do to merit that. So God's righteousness has been manifested. Now the rest of this passage, verses 22 through 26, gives us four components of how righteousness comes to sinful people. It's breaking down in a simple, clear, concise, but beautiful and extravagant way 
how this all holds together, how you have Romans 1, 18 through 32, through thir- sorry, 3 verse 20, right up against the righteousness of God. How, how can those things even get near one another, let alone enter into one another? So four components of how righteousness comes to sinful people. Each of these verses, verses 22, 23, 24, and 25, give us uh, each one, each of those give us one uh, component. Verse 22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. The righteousness of God through faith. Through faith. Okay, so um, this is, this is when, we, when we're thinking about faith. We're going we're gonna to unpack faith a little bit more uh, in verse 24. But here at least we see that this isn't just like general faith in a higher power. This isn't just faith in God. This is faith in Christ. And what's interesting here is it, is it says that it's, it's, it's available to all. Anybody who would believe. That's really the, the big picture of, of where this turn goes. God's righteousness, his redemption is available to everybody with no distinction. And I know that I can think of people um, in my life right now, and I can think of people in the past who I thought were exceptions to this for either the, the fact that they were just too far gone and God couldn't forgive them, or that they were just so stubborn that they wouldn't ever. I mean, I, can th- I know people like that, and you probably know people like that, but what this passage does is it shines a bright light of hope into that. Anybody, anybody who would believe. So we don't have to give up. We don't have to give up on anybody because it's available to any who would believe. So that's the first component of how righteousness comes to sinful people. It's through faith in Christ, and it's for everybody. The second component of how righteousness comes to sinful people is in verse 23. It says, For, or because, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how righteousness comes, this is how it can't. It can't come through our own actions. It can't come through our own efforts. Why? Because everybody has sinned and everybody keeps on falling short of the glory of God. That glory of God piece, that's, that's in a continual tense. So this is, you're doing it over and over and over again. You're stuck in it. Endless cycle. So what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Well, the word glory, it means weight. Heaviness, literally. So in, in relation to God, it's, it's seeing God as actually important. It's seeing God as relevant, as special, as worth listening to, as real. And so to fall short of the glory of God is to treat him lightly. It's, it's to say, it's, it's, it's just like to take a piece of paper, crumble it up and throw it in the trash can, just... Watch it float on by. I mean, it just doesn't mean anything. And so because of this, this is precisely why God's salvation, God's saving us cannot be us cooperating with him. 
It can't be like a little bit of us and a little bit of him. Because he would do his part and then we wouldn't. Because we would think, wait, like, I mean, he's not really God, like the invisible person. Like you're going to try and do something for me. Like we just think there's a million other things in the world that we think are glorious and weighty and worthy of our time and our energy and our affection. I mean, there's just so many other things. And, and the human fallen condition outside of Christ is that God means nothing to us. So if, if salvation were for us to cooperate with him, when he would come to us and offer it to us and say, okay, now you do your part, we would say, I don't care about you. You don't really, I don't, you can just go on. I got other things to care about. So it, righteousness cannot come to sinful people precisely because we just straight up don't, we wouldn't care about God unless he made us care about him, unless he showed us, opened our eyes, opened our ears, ripped open our heart and showed us that. So that's the second thing, second component of how righteousness comes to sinful people. The third is in verse 24. It says, and so all have sinned and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I want to, I want to unpack this, um, but the first thing I want to, I want to point out here is how this grace comes to us as a gift. That, uh, that phrase is, is used also in John fifteen twenty five, when Jesus says, they hated me without cause. They hated me freely. There was no reason. This grace comes to you for no good reason. There is no reason that this should ever have come to us. But because God is gracious, because God gives to us undeserved kindness, undeserved favor, there is now made a way that it can come to us. And I think there's a, there's a very careful distinction that we need to make here. Because I think, um, you know, when, we, when we're looking back to uh, earlier parts in Romans, and it's, I mean, Paul's just lighting up the religious people. Like, he's lighting up us, those of us who've grown up in the church. He also hits the irreligious. People who didn't grow up in the church don't care about God. But he's lighting up the religious people. And he's saying to them, you think that it's by your works that you are now welcomed into the kingdom of God. You are now reconciled to God. He says, no. But here, this is, this is like the last inch thread of this. It's actually possible for you to have faith in your faith and not have faith in Jesus. So like if, if someone was to ask you, so why, why are you accepted by God? Well, I have faith. That sounds right. But here it's, it's saying it's a gift. It's free for no reason. Not because you had faith, right? That's not what scripture ever says. It's not because of faith. faith. It's through faith. It's by grace. It's because of grace, because of God, because he's nice, because he's kind, because he's compassionate. But then it comes through faith. I mean, you think about it like this, it's, it's like, you know, a kid at a birthday, at his birthday party. And you know, the mom comes out and says, you know, close your eyes, put out your hands. 
And they're like trying to peek through and see what it is. That's how God gives to us righteousness. He's saying, close your eyes and put out your hands. That's it. I've got the gift. I'm going to give it to you. Comes to us as a gift. So there's a couple of, of, of really important, almost churchy words that I think we can just skim right over in this passage. Justified, grace, redemption, justified means we're being made right. We are made right. How? By God's undeserved kindness. And what does this look like? It means being delivered. Redemption is being delivered from oppression, being brought out from chains and slavery and pulled out to wide open green pastures to live and to move. That's how it comes to us. So that's the third thing. So, so far we've got three components of how righteousness can come to sinful people, how the, how the impossible can be made possible. It's only through faith in Christ, not through our own efforts, and it has to come freely with no reason on our part. Then look with me in verse 25. It says, uh, in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. This passage makes me think about the book of Hosea. If you've ever uh, looked at the book of Hosea, I'm going to flip to it right now, and I'm just going to skim the headings. So these are not the actual words of Hosea. These are just the headings put in by the editors. But if you just skim it, you see, a, uh, you see this back and forth. It's almost like God can't make up his mind. So I'm just going to read through some of these headings. You've got Israel's unfaithfulness punished. But then right after that, you've got the Lord's mercy on Israel. Then right after that, you have the Lord accuses Israel. Then after that, Punishment coming for Israel. Then you've got Israel and Judah are unrepentant. Then you've got the Lord will punish Israel. Then you've got the Lord's love for Israel. Then you've got the Lord's indictment of Israel. And then the very last is God's plea for Israel to return to him. It's, I mean, it's back and forth, back and forth. He's saying, Israel, my people, my spouse has gone off with other wives, other spouses. They've rejected me. They've loved other gods. They've sold themselves out to this. And so he uses Hosea as an actual picture of what Israel is doing with God. And so he's going back and forth. He's saying, you actually deserve punishment. You deserve to be destroyed. I should be relentless in my judgment towards you, but I can't help but have mercy Drawing back to God's uh, description of himself in Exodus 34. That he is slow to anger, gracious, compassionate, merciful, extending forgiveness to thousands. But who will by no means let the guilty go? 
So who he is is compassion and love. I think so many times as Christians, we think God is out to get us. We think that like, okay, just one misstep and he's just going to smack us. And then, you know, then it's, okay, well, all the grace stuff is ran out of that. Even here, before Christ, looking towards Christ, God is going back and forth. He's toiling inside. Because he loves them so much, even though they hate him, even though he has every reason to hate him, he still loves them. So I want to read with you, um, Hosea, you don't have to turn there, but Hosea 11, 1 through verse 9. I'm going to read that and just listen carefully. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to find them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to turn to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise up at all. But then listen to this. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. This is God in his kindness, forbearance, deferring punishment. That's what he wants to do. But here in Romans, we get the final word to this, the fulfillment of this. God is no longer making up his mind about you. If you are in Christ by faith, he's not going back and forth. His mercy has overcome him, not to overlook your sin, but to take it in upon himself. That's what this word propitiation talks about here absorbing the wrath. Hosea 11, God says, I have wrath, but I'm just not going to let it fly right now. I'm going to hold it back. But here, God has let it fly. And not on you and not on me. He has stepped in between. He himself, God in flesh, Jesus Christ has stepped in between that. And now he absorbs the wrath of God for you and me, and God's heart no longer has to recoil. He's no longer confused. He's no longer up and down, back and forth. God can now freely love us and be right for it and be just in loving sinners because he has done something about it. He himself, he releases that from us, that burden he takes that off of, of, of our back and puts that onto his very own back. Carries that for us. Dies in our place. And what does it say here? Whom God, Christ, 
whom God put forward. God the Father put Christ forward as propitiation by his blood. He bled and died for you so that you don't have to bleed and die for God. We think we have to make ourselves bleed for him. He's not looking for blood anymore. He's got it. He's got his own and he covers us in it and he is no, he's no longer angry. He's not angry at you. He should be. He should hate you. He should be really angry. But he's not. That's the good news. That is the good news that God is happy with you. Not because of you, but because of Christ. And God loves you, not because of you, but because of himself. This is, this is what it means for it to come freely. He does, he accomplishes it, and then he gives it for free. No strings attached. You just stick out your hands and you close your eyes. And God says, I love you, I love you, I love you. God didn't do this because he promised that he would do it. And now he just had to keep his promise. He promised to do this because he actually loves us. Because he actually cares about us. Because he is compassionate. You don't have to twist his arm to be like that. That is his nature. And now we, because of Christ, through faith, get to experience the blessings and the benefits of that. So stop worrying. If you have put your faith in Christ, stop worrying. God's anger has been extinguished. It's been put out. Martin Lloyd-Jones sums up this section by saying this, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and rests on that alone. There is rest. You can stop worrying. You don't have to keep wondering about what God thinks about you. And this is the key. This is the key to the whole Thing And this is why we're not going to have time to really unpack uh, verses 27 through 31. But this is why he then says, then what becomes of our boasting in verse 27? What becomes of our boasting? Do we have anything to brag about? Is there anything left? No, it's excluded. It's ripped away. You have nothing to boast in, in and of yourself, except Christ and him crucified. It's looking to him, not what you were yesterday when you were a good Christian, not what you were today because you were a good Christian, not what you will be because you're becoming a better Christian. You look solely, wholly, fully upon Christ and his blood. And we boast in that. And we'll unpack this more in, in coming weeks, but he, he finishes this section by bringing up the law again. So if, if this comes to us outside of the law, apart from the law, then what good is the law? What good is caring about right and wrong anymore if God just loves us because he died for us? He says, what's our relationship to the law? He says, he ends it by saying, we don't give up on it. We give up on boasting, but we don't give up on the law. Why? Because Christ himself 
has upheld it. And so he says, we uphold the law. We now actually hold up the law because Christ kept the law for us and he suffered its punishments for us. So we don't just get Jesus and throw the law away. We remember the law because the law is what tied Christ to do what he did. It's what caused him to do what he did for us. He remained just in keeping the law. So now we are freed to care deeply about justice. We can actually, we don't just say, well, it doesn't matter what you do. Jesus loves you. If you, if you take it to that and we've missed it. And so as we, we come to the close of this passage, I want you to, to bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want to give you a second to, to pray. And here in a second, we're going to have two ways for you to respond. Um, because any time that the gospel comes to you, you respond. Whether you like it or not, either in faith, in belief, or in unbelief. And so I want to give you a second to just, one, thank God. Thank God for this beautiful truth. If you know Jesus, thank him for this, this gift that he gives to you freely. Father, we thank you that you have made possible the impossible. You've remained just and loving, and yet you have loved sinners. You've loved us, and you've welcomed us into your family. God, in thinking about that, gazing upon that, that never gets old, it always stirs us, God. And so now as we come to your table to partake in the bread and the cup and remember and drink in what you've done for us, God, would you stir our faith? Would you stir our affection even more for you? God, we thank you that you have not only given us grace freely, but now you present it to us even tangibly in the Lord's Supper. Father, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.